welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And before we get into it this week, I need to start with a massive thank you because at the weekend, the weekend just gone, I won an award at the Mental Health Blog Awards. So I won the Podcaster of the Year Award and it's the one that you guys all voted for. So yeah, massive thank you. I'm absolutely over the moon. You might remember for a few episodes a couple of months back and all over my social media, I was banging on about people clicking a link to vote for me. Well, that's what it was for. And I won, which is just wonderful to be recognized in that way obviously I didn't do any of this with that in mind but to be recognized in that way is really lovely especially knowing that people who listen to the show people who follow me on social media have like taken the time to click that link because it feels like we're always getting asked for stuff right review this subscribe to that donate to this share this we're constantly being asked to do stuff and you can't do it all you really can't no one can so it's just lovely that people took the time um, and care enough about what I'm trying to do to take the time to click that link and vote for me. And it's lovely uh, to have a little trophy to say, well done me. <laughs> so thank you very much. But anyway, I'm not going to let this success go to my head. We move, right? We carry on. This is episode 90. And my guest for episode 90 is Jay Wheeler, who is a Liverpool-based street artist known as Love Art Global. But before this, Jay was a soldier in the British Army and he served for 15 years. He went on multiple tours of Kosovo, Iraq and Afghanistan. And it was the Afghan tour in particular that would have a huge impact on Jay's mental health and it would lead to him being medically discharged with a diagnosis of PTSD. He returned to Liverpool and fell into a deep depression. And over the next few years, he had several stays in psychiatric hospitals and he made multiple attempts on his own life. He'd essentially given up and he spent his days in his apartment surrounded by piles of rubbish, just waiting to die. Police welfare checks became a regular occurrence and his door was kicked in so many times, he actually stopped fixing it and just left it open. But in one of the many therapy sessions around that time, Jay was introduced to spray painting as part of an art therapy initiative and something about it connected in him. He started going out at night and spray painting the word love around the city of Liverpool. The idea was to balance out the amount of hate that he'd witnessed during his time in war zones. And slowly but surely, he was able to start using love and creativity to put himself back together again. And Jay has travelled all over the country, all over Europe, spreading love through his art. He's had exhibitions, he's displayed his work in galleries, and he regularly works with community groups, putting on workshops and talking about his experiences and telling his story. And you might have noticed that I've put this episode out in two parts. And there's a few reasons for that, which I'd like to tell you about. The first reason is that it's really long. It's two and a half hours. So Jay and I recorded this in person. Um, I'm lucky enough to be able to call him a friend and he only lives about half an hour away from my house. So I went to his apartment in Liverpool and we just sat and talked and we talked for two and a half hours. So I wanted to break that up. I wanted to give you a bit of a breather because to be quite honest with you, 
this is one of the most beautiful but most challenging episodes that I've done so far. It's really emotional. We recorded it in Jay's apartment where a lot of this story takes place and there's a lot. There's a lot to go through and I found it really moving. As we move through Jay's story, I could see how different aspects of it continue to affect him. You know, the energy in the room changed and at times it felt quite heavy, but it was really important to Jay and really important to me that we told his whole story, all of it, because you can't leave bits out just because it's hard to hear, because this is real life. This is Jay's experience. So we go through it all and there is a lot of talk of suicide. There's a lot of talk of some of the things that Jay saw when he was in the army. And I don't do trigger warnings for my episodes because there's a lot of research to say that they don't actually work. And I think it's important to talk about the harder aspects of mental health and mental illness. But I also think it's really important that you get to choose when you hear these conversations. So that's another reason I've put it in two parts. So in part one, we start with Jay's childhood. That takes us all the way through to the army. We go through everything that happened there and everything that happened when he came home. The last half an hour, 40 of minutes so is hard going. It's a very challenging listen. But like I said, I think it's important. But if for any reason, if that's too close to home, maybe you're going through something at a moment and now is not the time to be listening to this stuff, that's a good place to bail out. After about an hour, once basically once we kind of start going to war that's a good time to jump out if this is going to be upsetting for you or if you want to skip part one altogether and just jump in at part two part two starts after the darkest stuff and we start working towards the light so it's still a challenging episode part two but it's much more focused about on how Jay got well on when Art comes into it, when his dog Fudge comes into it and how he started to piece himself back together. So you've got a couple of options there. Rather than me forcing this challenging talk down your ears, you can pick and choose how you consume it. If you're gonna listen to all of it, also two parts give you a little break. It gives you a chance to catch your breath because it is a lot. And like I say, it's important, but it is a lot. And there's a lot of light in there too. So Jay's a really funny guy. He's naturally very high energy and he's got some great stories of things that he's got up to over the years. There's a particularly great story when he's in Iraq where he's learning the words to the number one pop song in Iraq so he can sing it to a tent full of Iraqi soldiers. Um, and it's worth listening just to hear that story. So keep an eye out for the for all the good stuff in amongst the harder stuff. I'm so proud of this episode. It was an honour to sit with Jay and have him tell me this story, to be able to do it with my friends, to be able to do it in person, in the space where so much of this happened. It just felt like a real privilege and I cannot thank Jay enough for his time. I love what he does. I love his take on it. I love his attitude around it. He's the loveliest man you'll ever meet. And it was just a real pleasure to spend the morning with him. Like I said, we're in his apartment. We had the windows open. It was a really hot day. So you can hear some things in the background. If you hear like a funny panting noise, that's Fudge. That's Jay's dog. She was just knocking around the whole time. A couple of times she starts chewing my bag and we have to stop that. A couple of times she headbutts the microphones, but we just work around it. There's something really lovely about having her in the space because she's integral to Jay's story. And if you'd like to know more about Jay, if you'd like to see his work, you can go to at Love Art Global on all social media platforms. Have a look what he's up to because it's really wonderful. And when you're out and about, particularly if you're in the Northwest, particularly in Liverpool, Keep your eyes peeled for a love tag. And if you see it, take a picture, share it on social media and tag Jay. And you can do exactly the same with this episode. If you listen, if you get a lot from it, please feel free to screenshot it, share it, tag me, tag Jay, spread the word. It's a really wonderful episode and I would love for so many people to hear it because of how powerful it is. If you want to connect with me at Proper Mental Podcast in all the usual places, you can go to my website, propermentalpodcast.com and send me an email. And if you could take two minutes to like, subscribe and more importantly leave me a review i'd really like that that would be a massive help but anyway here we go this is episode 90 part one 
with Jay Wheeler, with part two to follow a little later this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Just go for it. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Mr. Jay Wheeler. How are you, mate? I'm very well, Tom. Thank you very much uh, for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for coming on. And thank you for having me because we're recording this in person in your house as well, which is is so sick, man. So thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Um, It's lovely to come over. Uh, This is, um, I was trying to think. When was it that we first met, mate? About a year ago, maybe? Yeah, for the Ironman yeah. project yeah. with Mick Coyle. Yeah, so for anyone um, listening, Mick Coyle is a local broadcaster who works for Radio City and Bauer Media, and he had a bunch of us down on Crosby Beach, mate, yeah, eh? and um, Beach. a little uh, Merseyside Against Suicide project. So we met then, didn't we, for the first yeah. time? Yeah. And... Um, sort of threatened to do this podcast then <laughs> <laughs> and finally of uh of making it happen mate so i'm like yeah i'm over the moon that it can happen and it's really lovely to see you man i appreciate good to it see you too, mate. It. yeah good to see you too um so yeah so we're in liverpool we're sat in your gaff in liverpool but i was thinking like you don't sound like a scouser mate you've same as me you've got an accent that doesn't fit where are you from originally i'm Jim? originally from wolverhampton in the west midlands uh, they call us yam yams. Right. If you're from Wolverhampton, they call you yam yams because uh, because instead of us saying, you know, how are you, we say how am you. Right. So yeah. Am and yam and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and and I I mean I I bought this little place uh, in 2007, and um, when I got medically discharged from the army in 2013, everyone that I've kind of um, came across in Liverpool. Their, their first question is, oh, what part of Birmingham are you from? And I go, I'm not from Birmingham, I'm from Wolverhampton. And it's like, you know, well, you all sound the same. <laughs> but I thought that, you know, when I came to Liverpool, I couldn't tell the, tell the difference between someone from Liverpool and someone from over the water, you know. Uh, it just sounded the same to me. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've been visiting Liverpool since the late 90s. So just I started joining the Army in 97. So it was just before I joined the army, I, I started coming to Liverpool. And um, the reason I used to come to Liverpool was because I was uh, really good friends with uh, Liverpool band The Farm. Okay, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and... Um, all Together Now. All Together Now and Groovy yeah. Train, yeah. And, um, and so when I, when I then joined the army, I, you know, it was seeing them and stuff was very sort of outspanned, you know, with maybe once a year or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I've spent that much time coming to Liverpool and just thought, you know what, I'd love to live here. And uh, and in 2007, whilst I was doing my second tour of Iraq, I um, I wanted something to call, some, you know, something to call home. So I viewed a few properties and fell in love with this one and... Uh, yeah, I've been here ever since. Oh, I, nice. But, you know, I, again, like from 2007 to 2013, uh, I didn't really live here because mm-hmm. I was away on up tours and stuff with the army. So, uh, like I said, when I got discharged uh, in 2013, I've properly kind of lived lived here since then. You yeah, know? yeah. 
Oh, mate, it's home now. We were talking about Ian Brown before, and was it? He said, it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, that, that no truer statement. Yeah. You know, um, and I think, you know, for me, it, I said to you earlier, um, I didn't have anything to call home. And when I, when I was on leave, I used to, you know, just sleep at mates uh, on, on couches and, and things like that. And uh, I just thought, you know what? I'd like to have something to show for all the kind of hard work that I've done, you know, in the yeah. army. So, yeah, I, and this is ideal for me. Yeah, you know. yeah, definitely, man. So how old were you when you joined the army, Joe? I was uh, 20, 21. Yeah. yeah, I joined when I was 21. So I joined quite late. Um, but I joined when I was 21 in 97. Um, and I'll tell you something as well on this... As a kid growing up, you know, we didn't have any uh, support from our, our mum. We didn't have any encouraging conversations or anything like that. And I remember saying to her, uh, I said, you know, I'm joining the army. And uh, and she was like, yeah, whatever. And then and I'd gone through the process of, you know, doing assessments and physical assessments and all of that. And... Um, and I, I, I got in, and I, s I remember saying to her, the day I was leaving to go and do basic training, I said, um, right, I'm off then, I'm off, you know, joining the army. And she was like, yeah, see you in two weeks. And it was just very much like that tone, see you in two weeks. Like, uh, she had no, wasn't, wasn't bothered, you know, couldn't have cared less. And for me, you know, uh, growing up with, with our mom and, uh, and my older brother and younger brother, um, you know, no one had done anything like that in our family. I think my granddad did uh, national service, you mm. know. Um, but other than that, no, no one did anything like that. And, and so I thought, wow, you know. And I, I just thought, wow, you should be, sh shouldn't you be proud? Or, mm. And going, you, you know, do it and do well. And she didn't do any of that. And, and the, the mad thing is, is that I did three and a half months basic training. And... Um, even even just before I joined basic training, even my some of my friends from from school and stuff were saying, "Oh, you know, you sh you shouldn't join the army because I'm mixed race," and uh, some of my friends were black and they were like, "Oh, there's 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 no place in the army for black people and this that and the other." And I was like, "I don't I don't I don't waver to that. Like, um, I I wanted to join the army and that's what I wanted to do, and the reason I wanted to join the army was to help people. So, you know." I, I knew exactly what I was doing and, and their, their, their thoughts and it didn't really matter to me. So at the end of this three months basic training, two days before the passing out parade, um, we had like a drill session, uh, rehearsal, and then the, the squadron leader gave out and says, right, we've got some awards to give out at the passing out parade. Uh, best PT goes to so-and-so, best new shot goes to so-and-so. And the best recruit is the main award. Can't get nothing higher than the best recruit. Trooper Wheeler. And I was like, nice. wow, are you serious? And then uh, when we broke up, broke away and stuff, I said to my troop corporal, I was like, I don't get that. I said, I thought I would, maybe I'd have got best shot because I knew that my shooting had, on ranges had, had progressed and, you know, it was really rubbish. I couldn't hit a barn door or nothing. And then as time went on, you know, it just I just got better at it. So I thought, if anything, and they were like, no, you best recruit. And I, and, and, and I wasn't good at, 
I wasn't, I wasn't brilliant. I was good at the lessons and the training, but I wasn't brilliant. Um, but what, 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 I, what caught their eye was, um, where, for example, if, if we had a task and then I individually and I completed my task and I see someone else still struggling with that task, I go and help them. And, mm -hmm. and, and that was just something that I did without giving it a second thought. Um, when we were doing the, the boot runs, when we were doing the, the long cross-country runs, my fitness was, was, was the best and at that time, you know. And you, at the end, you know, you look back when you're running, you see the back of the, back of the line and there's people struggling. What I used to do was I'd run back to the back of the line and then just encourage them to keep going. And that's all I used to do. And he said, this is why you got the, uh, the best recruiter award. So then the, the basic training, they got in touch with uh, my mom and, 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 you know, said, look, your son's going to get this award, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and she never came. She never came to the oh, pass and that nice. parade. And um, some of my friends came, my close friends came. And, and they were like, you know, at the end, when we broke, did the parade and we broke. And one of my friends who I'd known all through school was like, ran up to me. He's like, my, wow, like, Wheeler, you got this best. Like, I remember you at school and <laughs> this, you know, and now all of a sudden you're, you're on a parade square picking up some, some beef. Here. And, and, and I was like, you know, because I knew what I was joining the army for. I was joining the army because... Uh, from a little boy, I always wanted to join the police, you know. Right. Um, but due to getting into a lot of fighting and, and stuff like that when I was younger, um, that never worked out. Um, but I, I, I knew that I could still achieve the same objective by joining the army. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Mate, so that was 97. 97, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I did the basic training and then went off and did my phase two training because I joined my regiment uh, is the Queen's Royal Hussars and it's part of the Royal Armoured Corps, which is uh, basically tanks. So when I joined, I was trained on Challenger 1, main battle tank. And then later on through my career, we then moved to uh, Challenger 2 and stuff, but did my phase two training. And then at the end of that, I went off to Catrick in North Yorkshire to join my regiment. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that was, and that was uh, by 1999, 90, we then moved from Catrick and moved to Senelaga in Germany. Right. Which for me um, was a fantastic experience because I'd never even been on a plane, you know, up to that point. Um, I'd never been to a foreign country, you know, at that point. Um, and it was just, I mean, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have much as, as, as kids. We were quite poor. And uh, me and my younger brother, we'd get, we used to get beaten a lot with, with like a, this, you know, a stick. And, uh, you know, our childhood was pretty shit, really. Um, can I say shit? Yes, of course, mate. Um, and it was, it was, it was pretty shit. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the army gave me uh, so many wonderful experiences and moments that will live me for the rest of my life. 
Uh, I mean, Germany, I found, um, was just an amazing country. And, and I think as well, like my, when, when I first moved to Germany, um, I, I then started to become regimented. Yeah. So up to that point, I was still very much Jay Wheeler. <laughs> and then through, through time, and, and I then became very regimented. And, and when I say regimented, I became very proud of my regiment, became very proud of myself as a soldier yeah um and so all these opportunities like i used to do a lot of fitness you know my fitness was always really really good and um and i, I ended up doing cross country for my regiment you know cross country team and i did uh navigating for my regiment um and i used to i basically used to take every opportunity that came my way yeah uh, and and that's the wonderful thing about the army because they do they throw you these opportunities you just got to take them, and I, and I and I took them. Yeah. Oh, mate, that's mm -hmm. awesome. It sounds like you kind of got a, I don't know. I suppose maybe a, a stability from it and a support from it that yeah. wasn't that you, you maybe you were looking for or. Yeah, I mean, people people say, um, you know, the army, it's very it's very much a family thing, and I would totally agree with it because I learned more about family fundamentals from the army than I did from our mum. Mm. You know, like, as a kid, you didn't have to do something wrong to get a beating. In the army, if you do something wrong, you get a bollocking for it, you get shouted at, and then half hour later, you're having a brew together, you know? And, 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 it's, and, and they'll tell you where you went wrong, they'll tell you. And so you get it, and you understand that then, and you can walk away from that, 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 that moment um, enlightened, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's why, and, and if you do something um, good, they'll tap you on the back and they'll say, well done. Yeah. You know, they yeah. do that. And, and um, I think that's, I, I'm only assuming that's what it's like in family life because I don't know what it's like personally. Yeah. I'm just going off what my experience is with the army. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and you know, when you do operational tours and, uh, and, and, and things like that, you know, you're living in a tent for like six, seven months with about 20 ADR squaddies in, a, in, a, in this tent. You, 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 you know, you're there, and none of you want to be there, but you're there and you, uh, but you're there together. Yeah. You know, um, and I just find that really uh, wonderful about about being in the army about that yeah when, when did you do your first tour mate when did that yeah my first tour was um the end of 1999 so we got to germany in around the july or the june of 99 um and then by the december we were deployed to kosovo right uh and that was my first operational tour and um our duties were Escort duties and uh, borderline, uh, border uh, duties. And um, I absolutely, because that's what I joined the army before. I joined the army to help people. And when I went to Kosovo, we were doing community projects with the local villages and, and people, things like that. And I just threw myself into it. And uh, it's a true story, this. Uh, one, one morning, we were on the tank park uh, doing the first parade on the tanks. And then... 
my troop sergeant shouts up to me. I'm on the back of the deck. He shouts up to me and he says, um, look over there. Richard Branton's over there. And, uh, and, and I became known as the uh, uh, plastic photographer because do you remember them, them cameras? You could buy like for a couple of quid from Boots and you take a photo and you yeah, wind yeah, it on yeah. it. It one, so when I got to Kosovo, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, anything. And he says, I says, uh, and he went, go on in, go and take a photo. So uh, I went over, put my berry on, and I, I went over, and Richard Branson was there, and he was surrounded by brigadiers, generals, you know, all these top, top Iraqi in the army. And I just made a beeline for Richard Branson, didn't even give it a second, because I was like, my troop sergeant said I could do it, I'm doing it. I just made a beeline, and I went up to him, and I said, um, Sir Richard, uh, could I uh, possibly get a photo with you? And he just stopped what he was doing, right? He just palmed off the, these generals, and he went, yeah, sure, come on. We'll have a photo next to this tank. And, and I knew it wasn't a tank. It was an AS-90. It was a, an artillery vehicle. It got, like, a big gun on the front, but it wasn't a tank. <laughs> and... and um, and anyone in the armor corps will tell you that ain't a tank, you know. So I was just like, oh, well, I'm not going to, I won't correct you. Uh, and we had this photo, and it was brilliant, a little chat, and then I got off. And then on the evening, every night when you're operational too, you get uh, an O group, it's like an orders group. So it may be on that orders group to be something about what happened in the day, or it'll be a briefing for the next day, so what you're going to be doing. And then uh, my tube sergeant goes to this O group, from the squadron leaders, gets it, comes back over to us, goes for the O group, and at the end he went, and the squadron leader just wants to say how, was it audastical, or something like that, <laughs> how trooper we'd had the nerve to buy, buy all these, um, pass by all these generals and uh, brigadiers to, to talk to Richard Branson. And I, and I remember, I think it was a few days after that, I wrote a letter to my mum, we used to call them uh, blueies in the army. It's like a, it's like a, a piece of paper and an envelope at the same time. So it's all military, military based. So I wrote you this uh, this letter and I sent it. And and in the letter, basically, I was just saying, look, mum, I just want you to be proud of what I'm doing. I'm in Kosovo. This is what I do. And I, and I told her some of the things that I'd been doing with the local villages and stuff like that. And I just recently met. Richard Brown, and nothing came back, you know, she never wrote back, and I just thought, in the end, I was like, I can keep doing this, I can keep writing and hoping one day, or I can just accept that you don't give a, f you, you just don't care, and, and if that's the fact, why should I then waste my time, I need to focus on my career now, because I'm doing something that I really enjoy, and I decided from then that I wasn't going to uh, ever write to her again or ever try and communicate with her again. Um, so that was my... That was my... Uh, that was my... That <laughs> was my... Um, my first two. <laughs> and literally, we came back after six months... Um, and then oh, fudge. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. That's what fudge does. 
She'll eat bags, shoes. <laughs> Won't you? Yeah, you will. Yeah. Sorry, um, mate. Where were you? What yes. were you saying? Just about, uh, you know, I, 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 I took the stand to, to not continue with something that I thought was dead in the water. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and at that time I was surrounded with, with, by good people. Um, I had a good troop corporal, I had a good troop sergeant, I had a good troop leader. And they just, they just, you know, they just brought me on so much as a soldier that I just thought, you know what, I, I can, I can, uh, I can achieve what I want to achieve, what I want to achieve by doing this. Yeah. I think that kind of, that relationship is so, it's so much harder when it's a parent, isn't it? But any sort of like big relationship, people, it's difficult to people to move on from or move away from, whether that's yeah. a, a, a job, whether that's a, a relationship with a partner, whether it's a, a parent, you know, and it, yeah. it's like, it, it pulls you back, doesn't it? It pulls you back until you make that decision to say, I'm not going to. I'm on my own now. I'm going to do it for me rather than yeah. do it for them. Yeah, so yeah, once you yeah, validate, yeah, yeah. I think that's what I'm trying yeah. to say. Once yeah. you can learn how to validate yourself, you don't need to get validation from anyone else, right? And yeah, that's, exactly. That's sad, but it's also like, it sounds quite empowering, Jay. It sounds like you kind of made, drew that line in the sand and said, I'm just going to go on and like be the best I, me. I had to because, I just had to. Um, because if, I, if I'd have allowed that to to really get into my head, I wouldn't have been able to be the soldier that I wanted to be, mm. you know. Um, so I had to let go of that. Yeah. And I did. I literally, I was in the army for 15 years. And when I made that decision on my first up tour, um, I stuck to it. I stuck to it. And, and throughout those 15 years, um, I just... I achieved more and more and more, yeah. you know. Um, after that first tour of Kosovo, we came back to Germany and within nine months, we went back out there again. Wow. So it was like a back, they call them back-to-backs, you know. Um, so we went on a back-to-back, back to, uh, to Kosovo and I didn't, I never wrote to my mum, I never did anything. I just focused on my job and... Uh, and all of that. And, uh, you know, I'm a great believer. And I've had this all, I had this all through my army career. You can't allow any sort of distractions when you're an operational tour. Because uh, people are relying on you. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, and you, it's, it's, you have to be switched on. I mean, in Kosovo, um, we only had... The only threat to us was when we were on the border of... Uh, Kosovo and Serbia so and 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 there wasn't any sort of confrontation or anything like that but that was where the threat was so you had to be clued you know you got to be switched on you got to be observant and all the rest of it um but I've got to tell you this this story um when I was in my first Kosovo mm -hmm. and um me and three others were tasked by our troop sergeant to go into the mountain this was like December, it was like winter, snow, the lot, freezing. Go up into the mountains, see if there's any sort of families that need some sort of help. 
Like we, we had like blankets, toys, uh, things like that, you know, to give to, to villagers. So we went up, up these mountains and we came across this one, this one house. And when I say house, I mean, I would call it a house. But it was just basically, it was like a mud hut with um, um, open spaces for windows, but no windows, you know. Uh, an open space for a door, but no door. And we, the, 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 the father, it was like the father, the wife, and he had a little boy and a little girl. And uh, he brought us into his home, you know. And they had like the living room and the bedroom was the same room. And they had like a, a fire thing in there. Um, they had another room for like the cooking. And they had, uh, at the back of this yard... They had a cow. Now the cow was their uh, income. So to get the milk and then take the milk to market and stuff like that, they couldn't do it. And I remember looking around the rooms and the bedroom, there was, there was no mattress or nothing like that. It was just a couple of blankets on the floor. And you had where the, the mum and the dad slept and you had where the children slept. Just blankets, that's all it was. Um... And then he'd explain to us via the interpreter that, you know, they were struggling financially because they couldn't get to market because of the bad weather and stuff. And um, and we went, okay. And then we, we went back to our camp, said to the chief sergeant, right, we found this family. I think they need some sort of, you know, if we can give them extra blankets and, and stuff like that. They've got two little children all that. And uh, he said, right, tomorrow morning, you guys go up again and take on the blankets and that. Now, because we were on the border, uh, we had like a little substation, right? And we had uh, uh, an army chef attached to us, right? But we were on rations. And when I say rations, I mean like boiling the bags, you know, 24-hour ration boxes. Um, plus, we had the chef had made like a little dining area, you know, uh, and in that little dining area, because we used to get uh, fresh fruit and vegetables from the main camp and they'd send it up to us, you know. Um, so he had, in this dining area, he had like these big black bins, right? And there was one bin like full of chocolate bars. Another bin was full of crisps. Another bin with, with biscuits. Another bin was fruit. Um, things like that. So I just thought, you know, okay. Uh, I got myself a black bin liner bag and I went into the uh, into the, the little cookhouse tent and I started getting all these, putting all these biscuits and fruit and crisps and whatever into this black bag. And uh, the chef comes in and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, uh, oh, I said, look, we went and seen this family today, mate, and I said, they got nothing. Like, they got nothing. So we're storing out some blankets and stuff tomorrow we're going to drop off, but... You know, I'm just going to grab a bit, few of these and take them. And he was like, like a proper job's worth. And he was going, you can't do that. This is, this is part of your rations. And I went, mate, we get the 24-hour ration packs. Plus, we've got all of this anyway, all this, all this over-added stuff. Uh, so, you know, this is for a family that's got nothing. And he was like, no, you can't fucking do that. Like, I'm going to speak to your troop sergeant. So he fucked off and went and spoke to my troop sergeant. And he came back with my troop sergeant. And my troop sergeant says, what are you doing, Jay? And I says, you know the family we went and saw today? Blah, blah, blah. 
these and I just thought it'd be nice. And he went, he said to the chef, wind your necking. You're not going out there. You're not seeing what he's just seen. Wind your necking. And there's, there's more than enough food here for us, as, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we said, crack on. And, and that, the next morning, we got all the stuff in the Land Rover and went up to this, to this, to this family. And I kid you not, as God is my witness, we handed them the blankets. We got some toys and stuff that uh, the main camp had sent us, you know, for community projects like that. Took some toys for the kids and stuff. And I remember going to the van and I took this big, and it was full, mate. It was like <laughs> Santa, like, you know, proper Santa sack. And, um, and, I, and I put it in front of them and I opened it up and I said, you know, these... And I and I looked, I looked, I looked at their eyes. I looked at the dad, the mum, the children, and they were looking into this bag with just an awe of of like their eyes widened, and 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 that's all I needed to see. Yeah. I, that was enough. I seen it at that moment in their eyes, and they t and they were so thankful and so grateful, and um, and and I always tell that story to whoever will listen because that was why I joined the army yeah. to do things like that I know joining the army part and parcel that one day you may have to fight as I later learned you know when I we started going to Iraq and stuff but primarily that 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 experience there that moment there was was just it signed and sealed it for me because I'm like this is why I joined the army yeah to, to, yeah and that that bag that bag of chocolates and crisps and stuff that would probably have lasted on maybe a week if that right but it was it was just that moment when they they were just so grateful and I just thought wow and I remember coming home on um, on R and R. And I, I was, because I, I didn't have this place then. So I used to stay at my friends in, in Wolverhampton when I was on leave. And, I, and I, I came home and I was just like, even walking into town and stuff, I was like, you know, I'm so grateful for what I have. Like, um, I think a lot of people concern themselves with the things that they don't have. You know, and I think for me, uh, that experience alone just taught me to be grateful for what I have because um, you imagine, that's, and that's all you can imagine, but you imagine living in that sort of mud hut thing with no, you know, no, no, no windows, no, everything's just open and, you know, you can only, you can only imagine, but I seen it, yeah. I saw it. Um, and so that then says to me, you need to be grateful for what you've got, man, because there's a lot of people out there that's got a lot less, you know, yeah, and a lot less yeah. fortunate. Nice. Um, and, and the second to the Kosovo, that was, um, that was more, or that was more UN, that was more kind of United Nations stuff that we were doing. So we were doing like escort duties and, um, and I, I did my, for my second tour of Iraq, I did my section medic course which I really enjoyed. So I then became uh, f one of four s uh, squadron medics. So if there was ever like RTAs and stuff with civilians and stuff that 
you know, we go out and I go out as the section yeah. medic. What's, a, what's an RTA? Sorry, mate. Like a road traffic accident. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, and because what we do, you know, we would always um, the UN stuff. You, you, you're just helping locals and local villages, and you, you know, you do a lot of community work. Mm. Um, but also, you know, you, if it kicks off, if if the the, um, the guys want to cross the border and, and want to start kicking off, then you've got to yeah, yeah. up the ante. But other than that. You know, and and we'd get involved, like I say, if, if there were civilians that had an RTA, we'd go out. You know, I was trained as a medic, so we'd go out and um, and deal with that situation. Yeah. Um, nice. But I also, like, my second tour of Kosovo, um, someone, someone said to me, you should... Uh, there, was, there was an opportunity that came out, and they were looking for a soldier that would do, like... Um, a DJ session, right, for right. for BFBS, which is British Forces Broadcasting Station. Okay. And BFBS will show all, you know, they have TV channel, they have radio channel. So uh, we were in uh, uh, an area called Podievo, and we were about an hour away from the main city, which is Pristina. And in Pristina, you had the main BFBS base, right? So I said, well, you know, I wouldn't mind having a go, you know. So... I got it all squared off, and they said, yeah, go on. And, and um, I got, like, an escort, and they took me up there. And for the day, they trained me to be, like, a DJ. And then, like, five days later, they said, right, we're going to give you an hour live radio, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I was like, wow. And I get back to Podiava, and my squadron leader, my chief sergeant, they're all having a laugh, and they go, what the fuck? You know, so I said, but I'm doing a live show. And they went, okay. So I says, well, I'm going to do this live show. What I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put out uh, like a request for dedications because you get all the squaddies want to send a dedication to the missus and at home and, you know, all these kind of things. Um, so I've got this, this bag full of dedications. And um, the day before, I had all these CDs, so I, I wrote myself a, a song list. Yeah. Right. What I was going to start with and what I'm going to end the hour with. So, um, turns up the next day, gets into the studio, and like, he sort of says, Yeah, I've got everything, I've got my CDs, I've got this, I'm good to go. Got all the dedications that I need to read out, brilliant. And, I, and I, I, what I didn't do, uh, when I went live, I didn't turn the CDs over. Right. So, what was at the bottom became the first, and what was the first became the bottom. <laughs> so, I then started going, yeah, uh, this is Chibi Weird from the Queen's Royal Zars, uh, BFBS. And the first dedication goes out to Tom, uh, from Tom to his wife in, in Liverpool. And, and it's, um, uh, give, give me a song. Um, oh, mate, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Bridge Over Troubled Water. On the side Bridge there. Over Troubled Water. Um, and I put it on, thinking I've put on Bridget's Fingy Water, and it'd been like public enemy, you know. <laughs> uh, uh, also, uh, it was, and I was like, I let it go, and then I just went, and I just completely like, but, so what I would say to people was like, you know, all right, I know people have asked for these certain songs, but you're going to get something else, unfortunately, you know. <laughs> uh, but the, but the, the meaning's still there. Uh, and I didn't know that the squadron was listening, right? So then when I, I had to get flown from Pristina because my squadron then at the time when I finished the radio session 
we were doing a, a live firing exercise in Kosovo. So um, I had to get a chopper from Pristina to where my squadron was. And the job got out the chopper and I runs over to the thingy and they're all just laughing and taking a piss out of me. And and I knew I'd knew I'd fucked up because I just the CDs had just backed up from. <laughs> but again, uh, it was just a wonderful experience, you know, it was just a wonderful experience. Um and and and, and it was just it 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 felt good, you know, it really did, it felt good. And I got to and I mean people didn't get their right songs. Uh done but I, I think i raised something like the equivalent of 300 pound for um through the dedications and that that 300 pound then went to uh, this local school like a uh, like a junior school equivalent yeah. to a junior school in podievo and that that 300 pound that helped them get like books and pencils and all this kind of stuff so uh, you know it was just fantastic and um, it was good for me. It was good for my squadron. Yeah, you know, it was just a really good, good feel factor. And the fact that I messed it up, I mean, that was part and parcel. Because uh, guys must have been going, must have phoned their wives the night before. So listen to BFBS. <laughs> I've dedicated this song to you. You know, and the next thing you know, it's like Metallica. You know, <laughs> yeah. or something like that. And they're expecting Phil Collins. Um, but yeah, that that was that was that was awesome. Um. And then, uh, and then I think we took we took about two year. We had a two year break from up to us, um, and then in two thousand and three, I did my first Iraq. Uh, I did my first Iraq, um, and that was quite an opener. That was a real eye opener because we were. We were escort duties, so we would provide like um, escorts for civilian tank trucks and and uh, petrol tankers and all this kind of, you know. Um, and you'd, you'd you'd have to like you'd drive for miles just escorting one from one camp to the other. Um, and that was quite an opener because we went to we went to one camp for like uh, about a week or so. Uh, it was an old Iraqi army camp, and uh, our uh, RLC Logistics Logistics Corps they went in and cleaned it up for us and made it livable for us to you know live in for like seven eight days. Um, but also as well that same camp, uh, we had a couple of incidents where you would get the um, the insurgents double up on a motorbike. And the guy in the back seat on the back has got like an RPG. And as they're riding past, he shoots off wow. the RPG. Um, and then they get off. We had a few incidents like that. Um, so that was that was my first bit of eye-opener. Yeah. When it came to um, how tough, you know, these things. Because you, you can do all the training. You can train. And you can have all these firefights. And you can... do train for different scenarios but when reality actually happens i mean the training yes the training comes into into play straight away but you can't you, it's unpredictable you can't you know you can train but you can't um when it happens you flick to your training but there's so much of it like your emotions of just running around it's uh, you know as as that was the beginning for me that that part was the beginning for me 
and then when we did the we did the second Iraq, it was it was just so intense, man. Like we was just getting shot all the time. We had uh, IEDs, we had secondary IEDs, improvised explosive devices. We had all of this to concern ourselves with, and we were doing patrols on a daily basis. Wow! So as much as you you're doing patrols and you you say you know you send hello to the local people and you and you 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 know you just uh, creating a conversation with, with, with whoever you come across on your patrol in the back of your head you've got to be switched on because you need to be looking and you just need to know that you're not going to walk into a tripwire or you're not going to walk on a pressure, onto a pressure pan yeah, yeah. and then what we found on the second turn of Iraq that the insurgents were doing a lot of secondary devices so you know you could drive down the road and your first vehicle get blown up and then you think, oh, that's that's it. And then the convoy moves, you know, later on. But it moves on. Um, and then there's a secondary. And that's how they used to get us, wow. uh, with secondary devices. And I remember uh, the second turn of Iraq, we had a, a signal that came through from um, the main station. And it was, it was right, the, the insurgents, they planning an ambush and they either want to ambush a female soldier or you know, take a female soldier or a young male soldier uh, because they can barter more you mm. know um, so I remember we had this 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 young lad had just joined us literally he came out to us about halfway through the tour and uh, he was one of those kids right because he was small he was like skinny and it, uh, and it, it was that obvious question that he was asked: "Does your mum know you're here?" Because he he looked like he was in school. Yeah. Now, when the signal and the sergeant read out this signal, uh, I could see he was like really. It changed his whole demeanour. And then at the end of the O group, I said to him, "I said, uh, you all right?" And he was, like, "Oh, you know about this like." The insurgents uh, want to kidnap and this And I said, listen, uh, I won't let anything happen to you. You know, uh, you're in my team. I won't let anything happen to you. And I said, if anything, I'll put myself in that situation before I, I allowed you. Because at that time, I felt, you know, I was older anyway. This was a young kid. And I just thought, nothing to worry about it. I'm just being honest. Mm. I just thought... Well, he's still got a, a good good old life in front of him. You know, it's one of them things, right? So I just thought, you don't have to worry, you know, and I, I always keep an eye on you when we're on patrol and stuff. Um, and then through that same period, uh, what what the insurgents had done, they'd ambushed an American unit. Uh, and what they'd done, they'd uh, taken an American soldier, all right, as a hostage, and they... Uh, beat him, then they raped him, and they, the reason that they 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 raped him, they believe you know if you if they rape you, they take your soul, mm. right? That's what they believe. So what they did, they got this American soldier, beat him, raped him, beheaded him, and then what they did, they got his body and they put it at this junction, and uh, they booby trapped his body. So, 
when the American unit went to, and they were like, we found him, and they went to fucking, and he, and he took out at least four or five more wow. because of dead booby trapped the body. Nice. Um, so, you know, I knew what we were up against. If, yeah. You know, the insurgents uh, wanted to make a point. Um, but, but, you know, we had we, 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 we had to do an escort duty and it was an overnight job and we had to go, it was like, it was about eight hour drive. It was a killer uh, from one end to the other end. Um, and we were just uh, escorting civilian fuel tanks to one British army camp to the next. So we, we did this escort and going up there, we were, uh, we were, we were fine. Uh, we, well, we did a we did we stopped, and whenever you stop, you you got to get out of the vehicle, and and you got to do what we call five and twenties. So you have to do your first five meter check, visible check, mm. to make sure you're not walking into something, and then you just add on, add on, add on. Um, and literally, we we came out, and it was like about six or seven vehicles, and we were on the yard standing. And we went to do our five and twenty, which took us into like the bit of the the, the, the side, which is like the desert. It's sort of shit. And just as we were walking down, I saw all these like small bombs and stuff like that. And 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 I remember shouting, uh, "Still, everyone, still!" And and I went, "UXOs, which is unexploded ordinances." So I was just like. We've got UXOs, and I could see them. Mm. So everyone back on the yard standing, we'll come back on the yard standing. And that 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 was the only sort of thingy there where um, you've got to go, ah, it's dead. You know, it, 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 won't, it, it won't, it's fine, it won't, it won't go off. If you have that attitude, nine times out of ten, you're going to you get blown up. So I've seen him, and you've got to shout. You've got to react there and then. All this thing about, oh, I don't worry if I put my hand up on it, on yeah, you know, looks, yeah. you've got to just go, stop. There are UXOs, whether they were, they were still alive, I don't know, but that's not a risk you're going to, I'm going to take. Um, so I remember that happened and then, then we got to the camp and it was about, we got there for about seven in the evening or something and by nine o'clock, we were in this, uh, in this like Corrymeck uh, like a just somewhere where we could just get our head down really and um, all of a sudden like we got RPG'd right so the rocket propelled uh, grenades they they came over that was one came over and everyone got underneath the like the bed type things that we we, we had fold away beds thing and unknown to us what the insurgents had done they'd surrounded the camp and there were about, say, four or five different individuals surrounding the camp, right, different points. And they all had mobile phones. And the, basically, the one went, I'm firing now. <laughs> so then the other geese is going, where it is? Okay. <laughs> Another one. And it just kept doing that. So it was like, there was, there was a, I mean, at the time, it felt like literally a few seconds. But, you know, it was probably about... A minute or something like that, but they just kept coming in, mm. and then I thought, and they were just getting closer, and I thought, fuck, this could be. That's the first time that I thought, um, wow, like 
I've never been in this situation. It's yeah, quite a life-threatening yeah. situation. I've never been in that. Um, but but we you know we got through. They took out one of the Corymex. I took out a female accommodation. And there was no there was no, no one in that. Uh, thank God. But they they took. But it just became obvious how they worked it out. You know, mm. um, and that was it really for that second tour of Iraq. Although what I did do, um, I said that's all I did. But for the last two months. Um, I was asked if I'd like to be a part of the training team to train um, Iraqi soldiers basic British military skills. Right. So in in our camp, so I was like, yeah, I'd like I'd like to do that. And um, and there were about three three different teams uh, with three different squadrons of Iraqi soldiers. So I remember, uh, and and it was like a turnaround, a week, seven day turnaround. So you do one squadron for seven days, do another Iraqi squadron, another seven days, and so forth. And um, and there was me. They put me in charge of my team. So I had, I had, I was a full corporal. So I had another, um, I had a lance corporal, and I had two troopers. And I said, in the morning we'll teach them theory, and in the afternoon we'll teach them practical, just basic British skills, right? So I rocks up to the tent where we were doing the teaching. And it was just like, it was about 20, 25, 30 Iraqi soldiers sitting there. And I had an interpreter. And I'd never done this before, right? So I was like, okay. So I said to the interpreter, um, what's the number one song in Iraq at the minute? And he told me, he said, this is song, blah, blah, blah. And I went, well, sing it to me. So he sang, he sang it. And, uh, um, and I went, okay. And I just remembered what I needed to remember. Um, we went into the tent, the Iraqi soldiers sitting there, like, you know, bewildered to see what, what we're going to be doing and stuff. <laughs> now, the interpreter said to me, this song, it's called, uh, it was like, you're ragging a sagne, you're ragging a sagne. And that's what it was, that's, that's all it was, it was like a chorus, you're ragging a sagne. So, I got in, and I seen them all looking, and I just went, you're ragging a sagne. <laughs> and then they all... They all just started jumping up and going, you're ragging us out there, you're ragging us out there. So that was it, it worked. Uh, and then I, I had them. And then, I, and then we did that. Um, and then we went into the training process. So in the morning, I'd take them through the theory of what, what I was teaching them. And then in the afternoon, we'd do the practicals. Uh, and we did that every, every for the s- seven days. But every, every morning of those seven days, we began... The lessons by you reckon it's that day, and and it was just brilliant. It worked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yet, the the tent next to me, there was like a full full corporal. He was an actual instructor, army instructor, and um, couldn't control his class. Like they just had no. He didn't have a clue, and they just run rings. And I said to him, "Sing the song. They love it, man. <laughs> Sing the song. They'll be on side with you." Um, but he, he, you know, he he just didn't have that. He, he didn't have that ability yeah, to yeah. do that through an interpreter, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, and then I loved it. I loved it. And the guys that that was was my team, they were brilliant. Um, and it was just a really good thing. And we did that for about two months, and then we came back to Germany, and um, I was getting ready to to do my challenger to gunnery instructor's job. 
in Lulworth down in a bike towards Bournemouth, Bournemouth Pillway. And um, I, I was just, I don't know where I was coming from, but I was walking around camp. And my squadron leader said to me, he says, um, right, you need to be at uh, Alman Barracks in the morning. Uh, you're picking up a commendation. And I went, uh, what am I picking up the commendation for? He said, uh, uh, the teaching the Iraqi soldiers the incident with the UXO and um, I think there was something there was something else where I had a trooper that just wasn't playing ball and um, he was new and he, he just he had an attitude where I don't even want to be here mm. and, and and I remember saying to him you know look mate none of us really want to be here you know but <laughs> this is the job you actually signed to do um, and so I had to, you know, it, it, there was a discipline thing that I had to bring into that. And and so I think what all that, that tour moulded me in every aspect of yeah. being a soldier. And um, and I remember the next day picking up the, going to, and I got this Brigadier's commendation and I couldn't stop looking at it. And I couldn't stop, even when the Brigadier was coming down the line to shake your hand, I just couldn't stop smiling. And And in reality, when you're, being addressed by the brigadier, you don't smile, you know, you just got standard attention, yeah, yeah. And stride ahead. But I just kept smiling and I couldn't, and my squadron leader was over there with my squadron 2IC. And they were just, and, and they didn't go, oh, what the fuck are you doing? Stop smiling. But of course, and then he handed me the thingy and he shook my hand and, 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 and I, I was just like, wow. Because I thought you only kind of got uh, commendations, like, you know, for. Saving people's lives, or jumping on, yeah, you know what I mean, yeah. jumping on bombs, all that kind of stuff. Um, but again, it goes back to that basic training, the best recruit. You do things. I was doing things that I just sort of naturally did. Yeah. Where in the real world, someone was seeing it and going, "Oh wow, okay, well." So that 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 was really good, uh, and I think that too uh, was. Um, a massive learning curve for me as a soldier. Yeah. It made me more aware of uh, the threats that we were up against. I was a, I was a lot less naive mm. um, when I ended up doing that second tour. Um, it's quite um, incredible to me, obviously, someone who's never experienced anything like that, is that you can have those moments of something really nice, you know, like singing that song, something that's just like fun, it's really touching, it's really thick in amongst I mean in a literal war zone you know yeah. that that yeah. you know like one door is explosions and chaos and then through the other door is um Jay singing the Iraqi pop yeah. songs that that's yeah. like that's so hard to comprehend you know so hard but it's um I, you know I just thought for that idea came from it didn't come from anyone else about the song I just thought if I'm gonna if I need them to listen to me, mm. let, let me, let them, I need them to want to listen to me, mm. you know? So I just thought by doing that icebreaker, it, you know, I'd never done it before and I just thought, well, if they laugh at me and, and then refuse to, you know, work or do the, <laughs> do the thing, then fair enough. But it, 
I just thought, give it a go, man. Yeah, um, yeah. If anything, they'd have gone stupid British soldier. <laughs> but 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 it but it just built it built a relationship. Yeah. So when I was talking to them and I I commanded their silence and and for them to listen, that's what they do, and that then played out in the afternoon when you were doing the practical because they took it all in. Yeah. And that's you know teaching. Um, I find. Um, it's, it shouldn't be uh, like a scary kind of thing. It, you know, you need to make it fun for people to l- want to listen. Because people listen in different ways. I mean, you know, uh, um, like I said, I've never, whatever course I've done or anything like that, I've never come out on top. I've never been the best at it. I've, most courses I've literally scraped through. Yeah. But... There's other aspects to, yeah, yeah. to to that person, you know, and, and that's that's what I found. For me, um, it built my char- character so much, um, that second tour of Iraq. Yeah, yeah, it really did. I suppose it's finding that human connection in a very inhumane yeah. environment, right? Yeah. yeah. Couldn't have said it yeah. any better, mate. Amazing. So, a couple of tours of Iraq. Yeah. Um, how, where's your mental state at this point jay are you starting to notice that things are declining um no no Uh, when i did the second tour of iraq um i i knew from the first one it had the ante gone up i knew i was more psychologically aware of my surroundings um the experiences with the UXOs and the secondary devices and all that, it starts to play with your head. It doesn't rattle you, but it just starts to play. Um, and then I, what I found after that tour, I, I went to Canada and I was the Colonel's Prairie driver in Canada, Canada in Battus, which is the British Army Training Unit, Suffield. And what, what, what the army does, what the, the military does, is for 31 days each year, all the combined British forces uh, will come together for a 31-day field exercise, and it's a live-firing field exercise. Right. So you do that, and it, you know, it's, it's got to be done, one of the things that has to be done. Um, but, but I went out as the colonel's prairie driver, and it was brilliant. And for me, after the Iraq, it was a good sort of, I can relax a bit and do this job, you know. Yeah. Um, but then I found, later on then, it was, it was Afghanistan. Because when I came back to Germany and started training for deployment for Afghanistan, um, you know, cause we did, like... I'd never done this before. When you go on a professional tour, you'll maybe do two months, three months max build-up training before you go to that country. So in that build-up training, you play out scenarios and exercise, all that kind of stuff. Three months. Afghanistan, we, we started to do pre-training. 12 months. 12 months, right? Wow. And the tour was meant to be for six months, right? So 12 months. It's solid, right? And maybe I went 
maybe I, I, I went back, I came back to the UK maybe twice or three times in that 12 months when we had that, a little break here and there. But the training for Afghanistan was solid, absolutely solid. So then, I think my... You've got to remember as well, I think as, as a child, being beaten at such a young age, it, it took a lot of fear out of me, right? It was like beaten out of me. Uh, but also, it gave me big balls. Mm. Uh, and by, what I mean by that is, that all those beatings as a child actually put me in good stead for that time in the army, for, you know, for, for growing up and being in the army. Because I think when you do a job like that anyway, there's something, there's got to be maybe something, a little chemical, a little chemical, chemical unbalance mm. that's been there from a very young age, right? I think I suppressed all of that and the army helped me to suppress it even more because... Everything is structured in the army. If you if you if if you see something that's right or or whatever or uh, wrong, sorry, um, then you deal with it. Boom, there you go, done, and it's, and it's gone. Uh, and that's it. You don't you don't give yourself you don't take time out to think about it to yeah. assess it. Um, so I, all the training that we were doing for Afghanistan, I thought, wow, this is. This is what I've. This is what it's led up to. Yeah. All this has led up to this point. And mate, I remember um, I was here in my home the night before I had to get the uh, train to Bryce Norton, and then we flew out of Bryce Norton and flew out to Afghanistan. But the night before, I was just sitting here, and I was like, it was the first time that I fought. I might not even come back because at that time, British soldiers were getting wiped out left, right, and centre. Yeah. You know, there ain't no ifs or buts, mate. They were getting wiped out left, right, and centre. So I thought, am I prepared for that? Well, I don't think anyone, well, some people are, I mean, terminal illnesses and things, but other than that, I don't think the rest of us are prepared, to, you know, for our death. Not at all. You no. know, it's something we can talk about intellectually but without feeling it. So we don't yeah. know it. We're not feeling afraid of death emotionally, but we can talk about it. There's yeah. like a disconnect, right? Between yeah. you can just say it and it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, yeah. very much so. And, and I just thought, and that was again, that was the first time that that was in my head. That seed was there. Um, and then, mate, we went to Afghanistan and um, for a, we did climate, uh, um, adjusting to the climate, seven days. So we stayed in the in the main camp, um, and then Camp Bastion. And then uh, the job I did in Afghanistan, I did it as a subunit, as as just me. And what my job was, I did. Um, it's called ISTAR, which is Intelligence Surveillance Targeting and Recognition. And my job was to go out uh, with, with, uh, with a patrol 
and I'd have, I would have certain grids, uh, map grids, locations that I had to look at that would not become an ideal spot for an IED or a Taliban ambush. That was my job. And I also, I'd go out and I used to lay pressure pads. I used to do uh, infrared uh, beams and stuff on junctions, back alleys, anything um, that I thought would be would be prone to engaging a, 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 a British unit. So I had to do that, and that was quite scary. Um, but as soon as I got to PB1, patrol base one, in the green zone, you know, the green zone, you can ask anyone about the green zone. If anyone's been to the green zone, it is hell on earth because it is every day. The Taliban are coming at you every day. You, you got your own. We, we, we rented a compound from a local in one of the villages in the green zone. Um, and every day they were shooting at us. Shooting scoots, we used to call them because they'd shoot at you and then scoot off. Um, and they did it all the time, day, night, whatever. Um, then you'd go on patrol. Um, you'd, you'd be engaged with firefights with the Taliban. Um, there was, we, did, we did a patrol. Um, we walked into a compound uh, just to check it. And I was the seventh guy back. Uh, of the patrol and as the first guy went into into this compound it was like a an archway right so you had to kind of duck to go in and then you come out into this compound and the first guy went in he was fine the second guy went in the third guy was the radio man so he had extra weight he had more weight on him so then when he went under and put his foot down the pressure pad was there right and it took it just blew him apart People in front, it killed two in front. The geezer behind him died. The geezer, be two guys behind him, uh, had his body split in half. But he was still talking. He was lying there and he was still talking. And we had to call in a helicopter from Camp Bastion, like a. Uh, Evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. Got the, the heli came down. And the, I mean, Bastion from where we were was probably, was probably about 20 minutes in the air. Mm. Do you know what I mean? If that. Um, and I, and I, and we'd, we've drawn and we've got, we've got the bodies and I remember that. And then I remember the helicopter landed and two of the guys, one got his arms, another guy got his ankles. They went to lift him up onto the the, the platform of the uh, the helicopter. And as they lifted him up, his body came apart. And that was... Uh, I'd never seen that before. That was... That was quite, uh, that was just a really horrible experience. That was the first thing. And then um, 
There was another one where we were on a patrol and the Talib, we, we were ambushed. Uh, there's a lot of irrigation ditches in Afghanistan. Basically, they're just sort of like moats, mm. moats or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in these irrigation ditches, there's water, there's urine, there's feces, there's, it's just a mess. But the Taliban are standing in it, you know, and firing at you and got their sort of cover and stuff. Um, and we, had, we got ambushed on one patrol and they had a sniper, the Taliban, and it was the geezer. It was the guy at the back of the patrol, straight through his neck, just straight through his neck, um, gone, mm. just gone. One minute he's, he's walking, next minute, gone. Then there was that. Then there was, um, then there was a, a, a moment. Um, sometimes, on a, on a daily basis, you hear you hear like really loud bangs, like boom, boom, massive bangs. And we used to call them own goals uh-huh. because there would be the Taliban would be laying these IEDs, and some of them would blow themselves up wow. whilst doing it. Yeah, of so course. we used to call them own goals. Um, and this was literally about two hundred yards outside of our patrol base. Boom. And we sent a patro- we went out on a patrol to see, and there was an old man, right, an old man, uh, Afghani, had trodden on an IED, blew his leg clean off. Now, again, what we did in Afghanistan, we were we were fighting the Taliban, but we were also trying to help the local people as well, to just to maintain some sort of stability in their lives, um, and. Again, we called in the helicopter. We got the guy on a stretcher. We ra- basically ran him back to the PB. The helicopter landed, put him on. on and I could see, uh, you know, Ira- uh, Afghani is a very dark, very dark brown, you know, skin colour. Just as we were putting this old man onto the back deck of the, uh, the helicopter, he went grey. Uh, and I couldn't say it any other way. He went grey. Put him on on the platform of the helicopter. Died. Wow. As soon as we put him on it, died. So that was quite... Um, that was another uh, experience. But the one... The one, that, the one that's... Uh, uh, as, as always got me is... My friend Zach. Who I met out there. And it was his team that were looking after me when I was going out and, you know, doing that. Um, and, and Zach, he was on it. He was 21 from Stoke. He was in the uh, artillery. And in our tent, there were six of us in our tent. Me and the, the, the artillery guys. And, um, we, you know, we just looked after each other on, on a... On a daily basis and you know just had to crack when we, whenever we could but we went out on one patrol and we got ambushed we got ambushed by the Taliban and what you have you have these like personal radios remote radios 
So you can interlink with, with your patrol guys, right? You've got a main radio that takes you back to the, to the main uh, camp and all the rest of it. Uh, and you can call and choppers and all. But on your, on your remote radio, you, you can just communicate with each other. And when we were getting shot at, all I remember hearing was like a gargling. That's what it sounded like. Because your mic's just there, just mm. by your lip, you know, lips. And that's all I could hear was the, like a gargling. Now at that time, I didn't, I didn't know it was Zach. But I could hear gargling. But we're still getting shot at. Um, so when we went firm, the Taliban then retreated. And then we, we assessed. And Zach, it was Zach that, that was... Um, that was uh, mm. doing a gargling, and he died. He just died there and then, and 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 that's what messed me up. It wasn't, it wasn't the first experience of seeing the guys mm. getting blown up and bodies falling apart and the old man. It was it it wasn't. I mean, every day we were getting shot at. Every day we were being RPG'd. Every day, right? Um, day, night time. But the Zach, when that happened to Zach, that. <laughs> but what I, what I what I do remember is that, you know, we got back to camp and there was a lot going on. Uh, the helicopters had to come and get Zach and and this that and the other. There was a lot going on. And um, within, once they'd flown Zach out to Bastion, um, within an hour, we went back out on a patrol. Wow. So we didn't have, we didn't have time to assess what had just happened mm. and get your head around it. And I I understand why they sent us out back on that patrol because I think, I think, it was the right thing to do. I think it's like you know you, when a child falls off a bike, you just put him back on that child and you and yeah. you put him on that bike and you know, I think, the hierarchy, I don't I don't think that was a bad thing. I, I, I mean at the time, and 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 you 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 can't have too much time to dwell because if, you, if you've got too much time to dwell then you become less of a soldier because you need to be 100% yeah. you need to be I suppose it puts other lives at risk right if you're yeah, not exactly, yeah exactly exactly so we went back out um, and yes we were we were it was the same patrol team um, and we were obviously a lot more observant on the you know it's only just been a couple of hours prior um, so I think we were all very over-observant. Um, but I, I noticed that when we came back to camp, in our tent, like nobody was talking. Mm. Nobody, was, nobody was talking about what had happened. Um, everyone was... Man, I, I, just, I just seen... Uh, it was just a really bad bad moment it, 
I didn't even know what to say. And I'd only known him since being out there. I mean, these guys that in the same sense, they've, they've known him all, all his army career, you know. Um, and that was, well, it was just a really surreal moment for me. But, as crazy it may sound, right? About a month later, I was due to fly out and end a tour, right? Come home. I'd done six months, right? Now, my counterpart, who was coming out, I think he got to Bastion. I was waiting for him to do his climatization thing. He's then going to come out to our patrol base. I'm then going to take him through everything of my job because it's his job. I'm going to um, make him aware of everything that he needs to know about that role. And he came and he, he seemed like a really good lad. But they were giving me, they were giving me something like a week to, to bring him up to speed. And I remember I went to, my, to the squadron leader that was in, in charge. I went and seen him and I said, look, I think you'd benefit more if I stayed an extra month and, you know, kept an eye on this lad here just because I know what's outside the gates, you know. Um, just really make him comfortable and happy with, with the handover. You know, I need him to be confident with that handover. Um, and and, and uh, the squadron leader was like, but you, you're going home? And I said, yeah, but... And there was a little piece of me that didn't want to leave. Mm. I didn't want to leave. I don't know why that is, but I didn't want to leave. And yet it was hell on earth. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up doing seven months. So that was another month where I never absorbed what happened with Zach and with the other guys. And that was, that was the, uh, the beginning of the end, I suppose, in a way, because when you come home from operational tour, you get a pottle, which is post-operational tour leave. It's four weeks. Send you home for four weeks, right? And then you'll go back to Camp Germany, wherever you are. Um, now you got to remember, I did 12 months build-up training. I did seven months in that environment. I seen bodies come apart, people dying left, right and centre. Then what happened to Zach? And I, and I came home... Um, I sat on that couch where what you're sitting on. Well, it was a different couch actually, but I was sitting there and um, I started crying, right? I, st I just sat there crying. And there's a church just across the road from here. So I went, went to the church and it was open. There was nobody in there, but I, and I went, I went down to the front and I got on my knees and I, and I, I shouted. I didn't. I just talked normal. I didn't. Didn't matter if there was someone there. I just, and I and I remember saying, "God, I'm losing it here. I need your help. I don't need you to send me signs. I don't need to look for. I just need you to come and help me now because something's going wrong." I came back home. I sat on the couch for 
another 10 minutes just crying then I went back to the church so you can see it's happening now right I went back to the church and um, I, I, I just started crying I was crying and I was just crying out loud um, I came back home sat on the couch and then I went through all these ideas because I just thought to myself my God is this the world that that I'm living in mm. you know like and then you see on normal television all the crazy stuff that's happening over here and well I got I just got to a point where I thought I can't be a part of this I don't want to be a part of this I don't um, the thing where you know my mum couldn't have cared less I've gone through all of that and I didn't I didn't I, I just wanted to die I didn't want to be a part of it so came back home and then uh, I went through my cupboards I got all these pills found all got collected all these pills and then um, I remember we were saying earlier like when you look back at some of the things when you when you was ill some of the things will make you laugh now when you look at it now and 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 when you said that I remembered because at that same time for me I'd gone mad but I I got all the stuff that was in my in my apartment I'd opened that patio door and thrown everything out into the car park just thrown it out couldn't care less got the telly out the thing stereo over the balcony couldn't care less the music was loud playing loud music and I just went I just knew then I, I, I was losing it um, I had my neighbour here not there now but the ones that were there um, they phoned the police so but what happened was I didn't know to find a place, but I, I took all these pills because the idea was for me to take the pills and not wake up. It's just something simple. Take all the pills and you just won't wake up. That was the idea. Then I remember I was on the floor and um, it was banging. I could hear banging on the door. And, and, I, and I remember crawling because my stomach just in bits and... Um, I remember crawling to the front door and I didn't even get to the front door where the pl and then the police put the door in, you know, with a, with a knocker. And um, they came in. Uh, I was on the floor. They got me, they took me over to the hospital. Um, I remember telling them that why I'd done it, why I'd taken the overdose. Um, and then I was assessed by the crisis team, social services, um, and then they, they felt it was necessary to uh, uh, put me into um, a psychiatric hospital. So I went into Windsor House Hospital uh, here in Liverpool, and I was in there for about three months, uh, and I was on every tablet going, you know, it was just, I was on tablets, so I could wake up, I was on tablets so I could get through the day, I was on tablets so I could go to sleep, you know, it was just crazy, and um, people prodding you and asking you the same old questions about how you're feeling today, and 
you know, do you want to go for a walk around a garden? And all this kind of, at the time, I, it just, it just was just ridiculous. And then I came out that hospital and I came home and I slipped my wrists. And I, at the time I had a wooden floor and um, all this blood was on the floor. And I used to live on this couch, right? I used to live on this couch and all the blood was on this floor. I didn't give it a second thought and I was like, and I just went, you know, I'll bleed out and then I'll die. And that's what will happen. But nothing. Um, again, like, the, if Christ's team couldn't get in touch with me, the police had come knocking. It was mm. simple as that. It became a routine thing where the police uh, was here quite a lot. Welfare checks, you know. Um, again, I went into hospital. Um, I came out of there. I then... Um, there was a really mad one. I, I, I set up a noose um, from, from just from that, that balcony there. And um, I tried to hang myself. And, and, it, and it, it just, I mean, it didn't work, obviously. But, but uh, I ended up being in a situation where I couldn't fall off that. But I was choking. Um, and then I remember... Leaning, trying to get the phone and trying to, because I, I was just, it, it was just a really mad experience. Um, I think it felt like my face was going to explode. I mean, it was just so, the rope was so tight. And, and then I, I could hear the woman, but I couldn't, um, I couldn't talk. Then I remember banging on the door. Then I don't remember anything, right? Then after that, the first thing I remember was, police officer was pulling so I was being I was being shook and and basically they were trying to loosen the rope right but they were also I think I obviously passed out so I think their concern was he's any second now he's going to die if yeah, we don't yeah. so that happened put me back in hospital and I went to uh, Broad Oak unit this time and um I went there and my, my, friend, my friend came and saw me when I was in hospital. And she said to me, she says, look, God's not going to allow you to do this. God's, gonna, uh, God's got a bigger picture. He's not going to allow you because you don't try to do it three, four times now. He's, not gonna, he's got a bigger picture for you. And I'm like, I couldn't care less. Well, what I did, I came home and um, I think for me, it was like, because the army... The army had put me on leave, right, sick leave, uh, for a year. And um, I came out of hospital that last time and came home and then resided to the fact that God's not going to let me kill myself. So what I will do then, I'll, uh, I'll live in a way that, I have no self-respect for me whatsoever because I didn't feel uh, that I was worthy of any of that. And I, uh, and I was feeling guilty for just being alive. And I think, you know, especially with Zach being so young and, and I, I just, 
the world just seemed to me like a really horrible place and I was like I don't want to be a part of that so I, what I did then I decided to I wasn't eating I wasn't I was maybe drinking water every couple of days or a packet of crisps just something ridiculous I wasn't eating right and I then when I did if if maybe I did eat then I would order like a takeaway right I wouldn't go out because what I used to find was I'd only go out if I wanted like Siggy's or, or something like that and I'd just go to the garage which is literally a two minute walk from here because I didn't A want to go I would never go out in the day because I didn't want it felt like people could see me could see how fucked up I was that's how it felt and I didn't I didn't I didn't want to be judged and uh, so I just never went out in the day. And at night time, I would only go out after midnight. And I'd only go to that garage. I would not, you won't catch me walking into town or none of that nonsense. I'd just go get my ciggies, come back. And that's how I lived. And I accumulated. I let the rubbish just, um, just, uh, just build up and build up and build up. I also started weeing in empty milk bottles and and I was weaning in the milk bottles and um, I wasn't emptying the bottle I was just placing it down on the floor or, or, or on the table or something and I lived like that for about two years now I would I would go out maybe um, 10 minutes or whatever but I'd, I'd always be here and and I lived like that for about two years because I think I resided to the fact that I just wanted to fade away. Yeah. Um, my door wasn't, my front door wasn't 100% secure, right? Because the police had obviously knocked it down that many times. Um, and I remember uh, I went out, because oh, what, what, what I found was, I think I went to get some ciggies. Then I, I, I came back and, you know, I could walk through my front door and there was flies in here. There was f like flies. It stunk, it smelt. Um, the, yeah, there was the bottles of weed, there's the bags of rubbish. It was just a really, really bad place for me to be living in. But my head was a lot more untidier than my surroundings, you know. And I, what did I, oh, so then I had this moment and I went down to, just down the road here, St. Anne Street. There's a flyover. It's quite high. And so what I did, I went to the flyover and I was sitting on the flyover, but with my back towards the flyover. So the idea was to just lean back. That was the idea. Um, and I was on there and I remember some guy because I was just sitting there and some guy came over to me and he was like, are you okay? And I was like, I don't, if I, you know what? I don't even know what I said to him. I just know I was in a bad way. And then the police came, paramedics came and there was a, like a, a slight sort of standoff for, a, for about half an hour. And, and then the idea was, the, it was actually the paramedic that convinced me to get off the walk, you know, mm. um, and then 
I ended up going back to, to Broad Oak. So there we go. That was episode 90, part one with Jay Wheeler. It's a lot, right? I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're doing okay with it. Part two is up next. I promise you there's a happy ending. Thank you for listening. Big up to that proper mental podcast. A proper mental podcast. <laughs>